0: We've got Andris Skitti he's going to talk on model risk. I see the name of his firm is, is uh, True North. I saw Francois earlier, they do South, so maybe they should just merge the <laughs> and south direction or something. Uh, but you can leave it there. So, all of you probably know Andres, he's a usual speaker at our ERM conferences. He's got a very good CV, with quite a lot here. So, uh, maybe. I'm just gonna give over to Andris, and then um, you can see that he's got a lot of experience. Thank you. So I, <clears throat> I thought the you know to be regarded as a proper risk manager, you've got to look a little bit like Vickers Lees. So you know I got got rid of the air. <laughs> so you'll you'll see there's some consistency in the approach here. Um. I said to Donovan, "You know, if I if I talk about risk appetite again, no doubt I'll have some nauseous people in the audience." So, <laughs> I decided to, um, to talk about something else, model risk. And um, I handed him the topic, and when the topic came back, uh, it was called model risk in 2015. So, I thought, you know, what 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 will change in my presentation if I have to talk about model risk in 2015 rather than just model risk, and um, I guess two thoughts come to mind. Um, The one is, uh, during last year, the end of last year, one of my clients, a big banking group, uh, someone phoned me a senior official there and said, you know, I got a call from the chairman and the chairman said to me, grab some papers and presentations, whatever you need, reports, and come and talk to me about the state of models in our organization. Uh, Model risk, you know, just come and talk to me for an hour about that and, you know, that thought." is would would certainly to me be a little bit spine chilling you know to go and talk to a senior board member about the state of models in the organization and to my mind i, I don't I'm not so sure many organizations are in a position where one can comprehensively coherently talk about model risk at the top of the organization. Um, on top of that, uh, recently and certainly in 2015, um, bank regulators have been asking fairly difficult questions about model risk. Um, it's been on the regulatory agenda for some time when we look back uh, and very clearly it would have been on the agenda after the crisis, but um, bank regulators are asking banks how do they deal with model risk? Um, is it appropriate to capitalize for model risk, for instance, which is, in my mind, not necessarily an easy question. Um, so. Let's go through this and uh, if there's any, Neil, I don't know if I can take questions throughout or should I do it at the end? So happy to have a debate rather than a monologue. Um, so I thought I'd break it up like this, let's, let's put model risk in perspective, uh, just an overview how did we get into the state we're in, um, what state are we in, I guess. Key elements of model risk management. Um, looking at a model risk framework, just a basic framework, if, we, if the chairperson or the non-exec phones up and says, come talk to me about models for, for an hour or two, or even worse, the bank regulator says, and, and by the way, this is quite slanted to banks, but I think it's fairly transportable to insurance companies. Uh, if the regulator says, come and talk to me for a day or two about model risk, that we, we have a framework, uh, as they do, that we have a framework to, to do that within. Quickly look at three lines of defense after that. Then the concept of effective challenge, which seems obvious if you just look at it from an English point of view, but um, just unpack some brief elements there. Model risk quantification and then a conclusion. So how did we get here? And uh, you know, obviously, when we look back over the last decade and a half or so, the regulators globally have... Uh, rightfully or, or rightly s- embarked on a process of enhancing risk sensitivity in regulatory capital models. You know, we've seen Basel II, the ICA, Solvency II, Basel 2.5, Basel 3, and underpinning these regulations uh, broadly are uh, models, risk, risk quantification. Um, to get a sense of how big this is, uh, f- just from a regulatory capital point of view, Andrew Holden in a pr- publication some time ago, estimated that a reasonable size universal bank has a regulatory capital space, a parameter space of at least several hundred thousand parameters. So, you know, you try and get your mind around that several hundred thousand parameters. How do you deal with model risk? A very nice paper was uh, published by the Bank for International Settlements in 2013, a discussion paper these uh, matters were positioned for debate and um, it essentially positioned the regulators challenge which is how do we get policy in place that enhances risk sensitivity but at the same time is simple enough and results in comparability so three concepts that obviously work against each other in some way or form um, in, a, in, a, in a fairly substantial challenge It concluded also that the risk sensitivity can really only be achieved when there's low model risk. So model risk is high, we don't tick the box. Um, Fortunately for us today, the institute and faculty have actually uh, responded to the debate and they had a few findings um, that I think are are worth noting. The the first one is they believe the Basel II and 3, and obviously uh, there was a lot of consultation in that process, but the, the regulations are not overly complex. So they concluded it is simple enough. They concluded also that the failure of models in crisis times, as they often do, should be blamed on risk management, not on modelling per se. Uh, They strongly supported the notion of internal models, um, saying that uh, if done correctly, internal models will always get you the most appropriate risk capital. Um, And then... uh, a few other comments such as the backstop measures we've put in place such as high level uh, liquidity funding ratios, uh, minimum ratios and so forth are probably ineffective and onerous uh, and certainly costly to the economy. So there's been quite intense scrutiny um, around models um, and internal models and uh, not just regulatory capital models but other models and so um, really that's where that's where a lot of this is coming from. And, uh, you know, if you look at the public, very public comments and criticisms on on moral risk, uh, and it, it does remind me about school days, primary school days uh, in the Afrikaans school, where, you know, the, when the boys start playing, they make what's called the whippy, which, uh, you know, a bunch of guys wrestle and pile up, and before you know it, there's a big fight. And this is exactly how this has been. Um, so Some of the criticisms uh, by taxpayers, politicians and other commentators are that the models didn't come close enough to actual losses, so uh, an accuracy point really, um, didn't capture all the risks, so some of the risks that in retrospect are probably, um, should be expected to be in there were not in there. Calibrated to benign periods, um, and and fun- interesting enough in the BCBS uh, 258 publication, and the Institute's response, calibration feature is one of the major findings around improvements required, um, failing, failing calibrations. Very high operational costs, um, spoke to a client in London the other day and uh, just asked a little bit around stress testing, and the client indicated that the biggest team of a bank that deals with stress testing I was aware of is a, is a bank in London with a team of 40 people in stress testing, all quants. So you can just imagine what kind of cost that kind of intelligence comes with, uh, risk intelligence rather than human intelligence. Um, it didn't prevent several failures, and that's a well-known criticism. Um, it requires significant regulatory resources, and you know it's, it's plainly obvious, I think, globally, how, how intensive it's been from a regulator's perspective. Um, didn't prevent taxpayer bailouts, exacerbated the cycle, so pro-cyclical. And to be honest, I think that criticism is probably a little bit unfair and probably belongs in a pillar two kind of criticism. But uh, be that as it may, um, there's probably a model there as well. So don't seem comparable across time and across banks. And remember, one of the three criteria for this policy really is comparability and not transparent to the outside world. And I guess one can add quite a, quite a lot of other criticisms um, about the failure of models. Some of the reasons, and I think the point that this brings across is it is not all about accuracy. Um, poor understanding, and I'll show you an opposite example of poor understanding uh, in terms of management. Disaster myopia, so uh, the longer a crisis is away, the more unlikely we will think uh, that it will repeat. Overly math-driven, and um, you know, there's some horrific examples. I think of project finance models and so forth. Where I know of one European bank that spent the better part of 10 million euros on developing one project finance model, and you can just imagine what kind of complexity sits underneath there. Um, I spoke to a, a junior consultant recently around risk aggregation, and I told it to Google Gaussian copulas, um, which I know not very much of. But uh, she came back to me and said, you know what I found? It says the formula from L." And, um, you know, so it's unfortunate that the good old Gaussian copula gets the blame for the crisis. But anyway, um, disconnected from the real world. Unnecessarily complex. So is it appropriately complex or, or, or not? Uh, no real challenge. And I think that's very valid. Um, the challenge, the, ch- the kind of challenge we see emerging these days is, depending on materiality and observation, op- you know, proportionality um, things like challenger models alternative theories and so forth. Solid view of, of, of risks uh, measuring changes in behavior um, so Good Arts law uh, I think is a good reference it says the moment the risk measure becomes a target it ceases to be a good risk measure and um, probably quite valid. Network externality so some of the real problems uh, in the last 10 years originated because the bank's counterparties, counterparties misbehaved and it's impossible for a model, certainly the models of, of this day and age, to, to measure that appropriately. Little data, so Simpsons paradox there, so you get patterns emerging in small data sets but once you aggregate them, the patterns disappear. And so you know you need to deal with that issue of homogeneity versus volume of data. Put incentives, and that's something that a lot has been done about. Investor return expectations, which is really again a behavioural thing, a uh, number of rules and inconsistent approaches across uh, jurisdictions. So, I've spoken about this graph before, and uh, sorry to bring it up again, but but I do think it makes a different point. Um, and so, this is Lehman's, um, as you might know, and uh, this is a risk appetite deck that it came out of. Uh, the measure they used, they chose the primary measure they used for risk appetite was um, economic capital. So you got the economic capital demand informing the limit, uh, sorry, supply that informs the limit, and economic capital demand um, informing the usage. And as you can see, in the run-up to the trouble, uh, the risk measure was accurate in the sense that it picked up the risk. It was risk sensitive, and the behaviour was to increase the limit. First-rate circle. And then further on, there wasn't enough capital left to increase no more limits. So, um, you know, the result was what the result was. But the point it makes is model risk is f- not about accuracy alone, it's uh, a, a far broader concept. Um, it deals with culture, scope, behavior, uh, reporting systems, and so forth. And so, um, let's not be naive about model risk. So let's quickly look at what model risk arises from. Um, the first point is incorrect inputs. And that is at the development and use of the model stage. And depending on the nature of your organization, some organizations, very large organizations, have very distinct center of excellences where models get developed, models get tested in different units, and the business is, again, a different unit. So that, that really complicates the the problem. and. Uh, You know, a lot of the discipline around uh, keeping inputs up to date and so forth um, become real challenging when you're dealing with a large organization. Unreasonable assumptions used in the model build. So um, the the degree of rigor um, that you use in in testing the assumptions. And I hopefully won't get too much criticism, but I think we do as an actual real community Uh, get tempted often to use a lot of expert judgment and that is appropriate often but I'm not always sure the rigor around documentation, testing, uh, falsifying the assumptions and so forth um, is there. Inappropriate underlying theories and you know of course Merton is a good example and so forth in, in many of the market risk applications. Use of a model for a purpose to which it was not intended to which is an incredibly difficult aspect to manage. Um, How do you contain, manage and disseminate intelligence coming from risk models? Incorrect or misleading interpretations of results, and this is where something like conservatism can play quite a detrimental role. Um, I've seen so many reports where the result is X, say look, it's pretty conservative, you can be feel secure that the answer is certainly not less than X and even that is subject to uh, a lot of debate often and and certainly not conservative in all circumstances. Incorrect uh, that one I've spoken about, lack of appropriate ongoing monitoring of model performance. So, where I've worked with uh, large validation units and validation comes up with a finding uh, and there's a requirement to monitor certain behavior whose problem is that really and um, you know, uh, the, the discipline around following up on those monitoring monitoring criteria is often not, not so easy. So what can we do about model risk? Um, do we capitalize for it? I guess it is one answer. Um, but how do we sensibly capitalize? Um, if you're living in a world with a lot of retail world, for instance, we have a lot of data. And let's say you've got good quality data. I think even then it's a difficult decision to say, well, how much do we then capitalise for for model risk? Um, and, And perhaps it depends on the application a bit. Do we rebuild? Do we decide when we have evaluated the model to disregard the investment and start afresh? Do we recalibrate? Do we consider different calibrations for the same problem? I know that Some internal model companies globally have one calibration on the same model for the regulatory capital and then another one for business use. Is is that appropriate? Do we just monitor? So we don't quite like the result, but it's okay for business use and all we need to do is monitor it. Do we limit the use? So it's okay only for one purpose. Do we supplement it? So say it's okay to use the model, but only in addition to another model, for instance, a stress testing model. Or do we just have nodes of control to control this, the model space? A very useful document, um, published not too long ago by the OCC, which is the Department of the Fed, uh, uh, is, is completely about model risk, and it, it, I think, identifies very nicely the dimensions. Uh, I've just highlighted four pieces here, but uh, a bit later I've got a slide that explores more, more of the detail. So the OCC's first point is model risk should be managed like other types of risk. There is nothing different to model risk. Of course the difficulty is that some of the other risks are informed by models and this risk deals with those models. Um, Banks should identify the sources of risk which is really part of that process. Model risk increases with greater complexity, higher uncertainty about inputs and assumptions broader use and larger potential impact. Most of that I agree with except Model complexity, because I think model complexity is a relative concept. uh, There's appropriate and inappropriate model complexity. Banks should consider risk from individual models and in the aggregate. And So there is a new piece, I think. Um, I think a few years ago, I wasn't aware of too many banks that had an aggregate view of models. So we had model development one by one, model validations one by one. You had SOAP validations one by one but did we assess it together, um, I guess a bit implicitly in the ICAP process in Pillar 2, but uh, not, not too much so. So let's look at a few of the key elements, unless there's a question at this point. Arthur. You mentioned incorrect use of theory, you mentioned method. give us an example. So um, a lot of the credit portfolio models uh, depend on the Merton theory, which is you know the Black and Scholes type theory, which has normality assumptions and so forth. And and, uh, and and you know when you when you evaluate it, it doesn't seem over time that it pe- it, those assumptions have performed too well. So I think that's the kind of thing I. I uh, I'm talking about the other thing is unobservable parameters. So if you look at the uh, Vysotsky type of approaches to economic capital, you've got those correlation assumptions which are totally unobservable. Uh, you can do a bit of magic with statistics, but you know you've got to worry about how much it really tells you. So looking at a few of the key elements, um, let's perhaps at this point just define model risk. So Model risk is the potential, and this is quite a common definition, I think, is the potential for adverse consequences from decisions based on incorrect or misused outputs and reports. So, two things really, the estimation and the use. And I think you can almost, more or less, take all the effects and park it under one of those two headings. Of course, it can lead to financial loss, and yeah, we need to think a bit creatively, because if you think of Akash's uh, presentation, the... The fact that you have no tolerance for fraud risk, for instance, uh, reality is you have fraud scorecards, uh, some of them required by regulation, and uh, a billion or two billion rand fine is a big loss to make, and I'm not always sure those scorecards are front of mind when we talk about model risk and model validation, so that's, that's, uh, that's an example. Poor business and strategic decision making and reputational damage. And then at the bottom there is just the the usual process for managing the risk. Identify the sources of moral risk then, assess the risk, mitigate and control the risk, and report and monitor. So uh, in my mind, not too many organizations follow this this path coherently. And again, the point there is that it must lend itself to aggregation. So when we talk about moral risk, we must be able to talk at the top of the organization about how does it come together. What is the state of model risk in the organisation and has it improved or changed over time. And it's a bit like operational risk, you know, it's, we need to make a start and it will almost certainly over time improve. So again, looking at the OCC paper, the, I, I think these headings are, contain the this, this subject field quite nicely. Five headings, model development and implementation model use, model validation and then the boring bit, or maybe not so boring, governance, policies and controls. Under model development and implementation, uh, the OCC report very strongly suggests that one of the most important things is to assess the purpose for which the model has been developed. Now if you think of the process, once again in a large organisation, much of the model development space is not necessarily that so, so close to the business. So to assess model use as you develop the model, um, appropriateness of the series and so forth is is not that easy. Um, And so it's worth worth keeping in mind. Documentation, unfortunately it will stay on the agenda I think for some time. My assessment is that's still, no no matter if it's an advanced entity in terms of regulatory capital or not, the state of documentation is probably not where it should be. and and it serves also as a corporate memory uh, repository. So, so uh, very important for continuity. Um, on the data side, uh, what data do we use? Internal, external? What format is it in? Is it the stage data? Or do we go back to source? Um, how do we use benchmarks, indices, and so forth? That should all be dealt with there. And then testing. Testing as we go along. And let's not confuse testing with validation. We had uh, one client suggesting that we do thorough validation during model model development, and perhaps that's good model development uh, process, but that can't serve as validation. Then the implementation side, and again in a large organization, and perhaps some smaller ones as well, implementation absolutely key. You might develop the model in uh, Excel, but it may live in SAP, SAS, MATLAB, SPSS, whatever it is uh, once implemented and whilst there's often some control around the reconciliation of the results, um, all, all the features are not always uh, tested. So the implementation part very, very important indeed. Then on the model use side, so what the OCC report suggests is that there's continuous feedback and improvement. So the model use bit not only in terms of purpose up front, but in terms of the use continuously with business giving feedback, and and it really could be some very useful feedback from business. How does the model behave? What do we see in the market? We've been involved in a lot of credit risk model developments in the past where you drive a result, business tells you, look, these PDs look too high, too low. And so there's two possible outcomes. The model is better than the market or worse than the market. And it's very difficult to to always decide which one it is. But so that, that engagement is very, very important. Asymmetric challenges. So, Some of the models require deep expertise, mathematical, statistical, economic, uh, multidisciplinary expertise. Business often doesn't own these, uh, the the same expertise, but they do have a proper understanding of the behavior of the market, and so how do you blend these two sets of insights? Reporting and that really is one of the main sources of model risk potentially. uh, how do we appropriately communicate the results? I spoke about the word conservatism, which is, which is at the bottom of that section, but uh, a, a dangerous principle in my mind. You know, we can, we can uh, if you think of that several hundred thousand parameters in a large universal bank, if you start adding conservatism at every layer, we might end up feeling quite conservative on top and, and perhaps we're not. Um, so we need to understand in the aggregate what invalidates the whole set of models basically. Model validation. So the first point there is independence. Um, and we've spoken before in the SAM sessions and so forth around the sort of challenge between independence and proportionality. And I think it's a really difficult concept. But when it, when it becomes important, decision, intelligence, um, independence is really important. Um, and equally important or more important is effective challenge. So the challenge needs to be objective and effective um, and there's a range of uh, solutions there and perhaps one can phrase it in a proportionality way to say that the more proportionate models get challenger models others not and so forth what do we do with the validation outcome so I've been involved in a project for instance that built a model that uses both internal and external data external indices but these indices were quite contained in ranges and so what the val- model validation unit decided is when these, the indices get back to challenge the ranges that these models should be reconsidered. The problem is what do you do with the out- that outcome? Who owns it? How do we know who's going to monitor, who's going to come back to the validation unit? Scope of validation? Um, not that trivial. Larger banks nowadays have to consider some compliance elements there. Validation units shouldn't become compliance units. I think it's a waste of valuable resource but there's some elements of compliance that you can't avoid um, some of the regulations for reg- regulatory capital purposes need these definitions to be checked and uh, model validation units are often the best skill to do that vendor products another interesting one so um, fairly hot topic for a long time now recently more in insurance as well uh, that deals with the use of intern, uh, external data, external systems, platforms, reporting tools and so forth. And the regulations are pretty clear and you can look at any set from, from, uh, from the insurance to banking side. It's always consistent in the approach that the inter- it should have the same rigor as internal data and models. And I, and I know that's challenging but a lot more can be done than is probably currently done, at least in most companies. Then on the governance side, and these days, almost every piece of regulation or governance standard you see asks of the board to be involved. And it's a pretty pretty big challenge, I think, for the board to be involved at all these levels. But I think there's some elements where the board really should be involved, um, because it can have quite important consequences if they're not. Um, The model risk appetite, for instance. How do we decide what is our appetite for model risk, because that indirectly or directly decides what kind of resources we deploy in this space. Policies and procedures and all the governance and control items. Operating model. Operating model is an interesting one because given all these requirements, the operating model can either render the approach effective or not. Um, So I'll leave that there. I'll say a bit more about three lines of defense later. External resources. How do you use consultants? And we're always happy to put up our hands and say, please use us. And there's times where it's appropriate and there's times where it's not necessary. Um, but it's an, it's an important resource. I guess from a board of director point of view, um, what I think is important is to have sufficient policy in place to support modelers and their environments in terms of discharging their responsibilities. So I don't think it's fair to ask of modelers, model developers, to deal with all the issues around expert judgment and all the other items. And then one that, that I feel is a very important starting point, probably, in terms of managing model risk in the aggregate, and it's to start with an inventory. Do we actually even know how many models there are in the organisation? And I guess it's a little bit easier when you consider only risk models, and the subset of that is only risk capital models. But having looked at a model inventory at a, at a large bank recently, there were the better part of 600 models in the inventory and they thought it probably doesn't capture half of it. There's pricing models, uh, there's a whole suite of market risk models um, and so forth. Uh, how why do we want to cast the scope? Um, but the startin- starting point certainly is an in inventory. Let's just know which models are out there and what they're used for. <coughs> So, looking at a model risk framework, then um, any question at this point, always ask it at the end. So, just looking at a basic model risk framework, um, and I probably suspect there's a few of you thinking, "Are we over-engineering this?" And I think to me the answer is, if the Reserve Bank phones up and says, "Come talk to me for two weeks, uh, two days, sorry, about market risk, uh, sorry, model risk." then this is not over-engineered at all. Um, but it provides a, user, uh, a good framework, I think, in, in which to manage the elements of model risk. So First, we need some strategic pieces. Um, model risk appetite, model risk policy and organisation. So I think those deals with three of the important elements. Execution piece, so measurement and monitoring. And then some infrastructure to manage model risk with Tools and methods, like the inventory reports how do we then convey the model risk message into which fora data and systems how do we store the information input and output around model risk and um, i think the mind bender for me here is model risk appetite how do we even conceptualize model risk appetite Um, it feels a bit like fraud risk you know we should have little if any model risk appetite models should be correct But we all know it's a simplified version of reality, so it's debatable if any model is correct. I think for me the challenging part is a lot of the models are risk models to start with. And so if we have a model risk appetite as well as a risk appetite, and underneath that a risk appetite for each risk, we must be really careful that these things don't start to contradict each other. Um, So what I thought... In past work that's useful is to have a model risk appetite that's not necessarily in your glasses it's more a risk management tool and it is proportional to what we do in risk appetite in the risk silos Um, that i think is a useful starting point but there's of course a whole lot of other models and that's where it gets really tough so there's just a few of the elements um, that sits in each part policies the usual definition scope roles and responsibilities use and, very importantly, integration. So how do we integrate these elements? And then a validation framework. So I've seen organizations take a model validation policy and then kind of make it a standard and above that position, the model risk policy. I think that makes a lot of sense. On the measurement process, procedures, alignment with the validation calendar, um, in large organizations, these calendars are very full. Model Development Pipeline and Model Validation Calendar is a is a pre-hectic space, so um, these things need to be managed. A monitoring process, so what procedures of monitoring and uh, analysis of the trends, what does it tell us, what story can we, what useful story can we get from that? And then the rest there um, in the slides. So hopefully if we get all that in place, we should be, ans- uh, be able to answer a few questions about model risk. Um, And the list is obviously not exhaustive. Uh, It is a function of the creativity of our directors and non-executive directors, uh, what the questions will look like. But some of the valid and and reasonable questions are are, what are our biggest exposures to model risk? What is our risk appetite for model risk and how much model risk are we running? Is our exposure to model risk increasing or decreasing? I think that's a fair question. Are we doing better or worse with model risk? And one of the features there could for instance be, what is our resource deployment? Does the exposures we face in wholesale tie up with the resource there and how does it compare to the retail side? And uh, I've seen some anomalies in that, in that space. Do we know how many models are high or medium risk? How do we monitor model risk? Are there patterns and concentrations and how, how can we mitigate the risk? So I'm almost done and then hopefully there will be a few minutes for questions. Just briefly on the three lines of defence, there's there's some thoughts about how one can position model risk across the three lines of defence. I think often it is positioned like that. uh, But I do think there's more work on the governance and oversight piece which deals with that risk appetite and the management framework and so forth. I must say that recently I have seen uh, a move away from the religious compliance with the three lines of defense model to something that looks at the intention of the three lines of defense but has a more business line to it. Some cost and benefits um, coming through there. So I'll leave that in the slide. I'm sure it will be circulated. <coughs> so let's deal with effective challenge. So what should our validation unit do? What should our external reviewers do? How do we know if it's effective challenge and really there's three elements to it. And this comes from the OCC report again. The first is incentives. What incentive do we have to challenge the model appropriately? And uh, it deals with reporting lines and, and all those elements, so organizational culture as well. How do we deal with a validation unit stopping a model from de- being deployed in business, particularly if you communicated to the regulator that the model will deploy, be deployed by a certain date? Um, how do we support that decision? Um, do we have a leave equal playing field between the developers and the validators? Um, and I must say, recently in Sydney and large banks, I've seen pretty serious resource being deployed on the model uh, validation, the second line of defense. Functional independence being a very important one. Then competence. And I think with competence, sorry, with influence comes attitude, competence, technical training, critical thinking and practical experience. So um, it's a very difficult space because there's such a wide range of models in the bank, for instance, that it's difficult in the validation unit to host all of the expertise, but at least we should have some, some grey A's there and, and certainly perhaps a few PhDs and actually, so hopefully, critical thinking. So do we think through the issues properly? Um, not just stepwise, but really zoom out and look at it holistically practical experience. And then influence. Do we have people they supported in the organization and do they have the kind of attitude and uh, stature that they can challenge models and not be disregarded? And model is that results in, hopefully, effective challenge. I just want to quickly talk about um, evaluating a risk score for models or quantifying model risk in the aggregate. and. One can come up with uh, complex ways to deal with model risk in the aggregate but um, I find perhaps in this state we're in, one of the better ways to do it is to firstly start with uh, an inventory and, and build a simple scorecard um, which unpacks the elements I've put down there, the building of it, the post-build world, the physical world, so the implementation, the use, documentation standards, knowledge. So we, uh, we have, for instance, the EC model, but the model developer resigned and nobody knows what's going on there. Mitigants, And that all together we can tie up as a, as a model score or a model index. And I think it's unavoidable to have a bit of judgment, but if one's validation unit has a standard which evaluates these dimensions and it is recorded in an the inventory, then I think one can fairly quickly get a very good sense of the, improve, uh, the state of model risk in the aggregate. Uh, it may not have an absolute imp- interpretation value, but certainly there's a, a relative value to see how we're doing on model risk. So the conclusion is that I think if, we need, if, we, if we're going to model, manage model risk holistically in organisation w- with benefit to the organisation, then we do need to make some investments across methods, data, infrastructure, reporting. But I think there's really some some big benefits there. Um, hopefully more reliable insights, hopefully more appropriate use. Something I think is definitely achievable is a more sensible resource allocation. How do we deploy our, our risk knowledge in the organisation? And then an aggregate view which I think often is completely missing. Um, for some of the banks in Europe, certainly the message has been that their socks must be pulled up. Uh, they need to know their model limits, focus on their assumptions, challenge, and challenge includes alternatives. So, for very material models, to actually build a completely independent challenger model, and then communication, making the results with the intelligence out of the models accessible to the users. Thank you very much. I think this. Few minutes.